Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Taiwan in ancient sources. Besides, their writers say, King Pepin, which deposed Chuderic, did as heir general, being descended of Blithild, which was daughter to King Clotaire, make claim and title to the crown of France. Hugh Capet also, who usurped the crown of Charles the Duke of Lorraine, so heir male of the true line and stock of Charles the Great. To find his title with some shows of truth, through in pure truth it was corrupt and not, conveyed himself as heir to the Lady Linger, daughter to Charlemagne, who was the son to Louis the Emperor, and Louis the son of Charles the Great. Also, King Louis X, who was so heir to the usurper Capet, could not keep quiet in his conscience wearing the crown of France, till satisfied that fair Queen Isabel, his grandmother, was lineal of the Lady Ermengarde, daughter to Charles the foresaid Duke of Lorraine, by the which marriage the line of Charles the Great was reunited to the crown of France. So that, as clear as is the summer's sun, King Pepin's title and Hugh Capet's claim, King Louis, his satisfaction, all appear to hold in right and title of the female. So do the kings of France unto this day. Howbeit they would hold up this Salic law to bar your highness claiming from the female, and rather choose to hide them in a net, than amply to embar their crooked titles usurped from you and your progenitors. That was, of course, the Archbishop of Canterbury, speaking in Act One, Scene Two of Shakespeare's great history play, Henry V. He actually says a lot more, but I think I'll decline to quote him in full. The gist of the scene is that King Henry asks the Archbishop to explain whether and how he, King of England, can make a claim on the French crown as well. The Archbishop replies with a long, confusing, and sophistic narration of French law and history that naturally arrives at the politically desirable conclusion that Henry V is really the rightful king of France as well as England, even if people don't realize it. In the play, of course, King Henry then invades France on the basis of this justification. It's a brilliant depiction of the misuse of history, of how people twist the past in order to justify their political perspective in the present. When it occurred to me to do a second episode in a row relating to Taiwan, I couldn't help but remember this Shakespearean passage. Political discourse on Taiwan often feels like this. Each side misuses history to serve their present political purpose. If you listen to Taiwanese pro-independence activists, you can easily come away with the impression that Taiwanese people are either indigenous, secretly indigenous even if they don't realize it, or even secretly Dutch. Definitely not Chinese. Definitely not descended from migrant settlers from mainland China. If you listen to spokespeople from the Chinese government, you'd come away with the impression that Taiwan has been an inalienable part of China since some 18 centuries ago. 
the then Chinese ambassador to the U.S. and now foreign minister, made exactly this claim just last year in an op-ed in the Washington Post. And it is the official position of the Chinese government. Its white paper on the matter says so. For today, let's examine the origin of this latter view. 18 centuries ago, when was that? That was the Three Kingdoms era of Chinese history, of course. The Han Dynasty had fallen, and various warlords fought each other endlessly until reaching a kind of partial equilibrium, wherein China was divided into three kingdoms, one in the north, one in the southwest, and one in the southeast. Today's story primarily concerns the kingdom in the southeast, known as Wu or Dongwu, Eastern Wu. The family in charge of this kingdom was surnamed Sun. And as you can imagine, if you simply picture China's geography, the Wu was the kingdom that faced Taiwan and Southeast Asia, and was, among the three, the chief naval power. And the events of the Three Kingdoms era were chiefly recorded in the San Guo Zhi, or Chronicles of the Three Kingdoms, which also formed the basis of the later historical novel, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. The author of the Chronicles, Chen Shou, lived through the later portion of that time period, having been born in 233 AD and died in 297 and having served as an official for a time in the southwestern kingdom of Shuhan, he personally witnessed some of the events he recorded. In any case, in the section of the Chronicles on the kingdom of Wu, Chen Shou tells us that in January of the second year of the Yellow Dragon, that would be February of 230 AD, the kingdom of Wu sent generals Wei Wen and Zhuge Zhi with 10,000 troops to cross the sea to gain the lands of Yizhou and Danzhou. The text goes on to say, Danzhou is in the middle of the ocean. Legend says that when the first emperor of the Qing sent the Taoist priest Xu Fu with several thousand boys and girls across the sea, to find the magical isles of Peng Lai, they reached this land and decided to stay. There have also been cases of people from the coastal county of Guizhi who set sail and got blown by the wind all the way out here. But this paragraph in the Chronicles concludes, Danzhou was so far away that the troops did not reach it, but they reached Yizhou, and several thousand of them came back. If 10,000 went out and several thousand came back, then by implication, several thousand others didn't. Wei Wen and Zhuge Zhi returned the following year, February of the third year of the Yellow Dragon, so March 231 AD, and they were considered to have achieved nothing, and to have violated orders, which actually could mean they carried out orders that were stupid. So poor 
Wei Wen and Zhuge Zhi were imprisoned, and then executed. Fair to say then that the mission was considered a failure. Further mentions of Yizhou elsewhere in the chronicles clarify how this apparent fiasco of an expedition happened. Sun Quan, the king of Wu, said he wanted to send a force to Yizhou to claim it. One of his advisors advised against it, saying, "Your humble servant believes that in our time of constant warfare, we need all the manpower we have. Your Majesty has worked so hard as to forget to eat and sleep, now planning on this distant expedition. I have repeatedly thought it over, but cannot see the benefit of it. The place is far away, and the sea is unpredictable." Our people, being transported to an unfamiliar land, will be prone to diseases. It seems that in seeking profit, we may end up incurring a loss. In yet another section, King Sun Quan asked another advisor for his view. The man replied, "A distant land across the sea is likely to be shrouded in poisonous air. If we send people out there." Many are sure to get sick, and those we try to send will be afraid of falling ill. So, what is there to gain? Side note here: the ancient Chinese thought malaria was due to poison in the air, as did pre-modern Europeans. Hence, the word malaria, malaria, bad air. In any event, Sun Quan overrode his advisers and sent the expedition, nonetheless. With the result that the expedition took over a year, and out of every ten men sent, eight or nine died of diseases. Sun Quan deeply regretted his decision. But you might be thinking, "Hey, I thought you said this episode was about Taiwan again. So why are we talking about these places, Yizhou and Danzhou?" The answer is, of course, that some. Have since then identified Yizhou as Taiwan. Interestingly, apparently it was a Japanese scholar Ichimura Sanjiro who first made this identification. But that's probably not something Beijing wants to highlight. And the claim of the Beijing government is that this expedition by the Kingdom of Wu in 230-231 AD. Effectively incorporated Taiwan as a part of China. I don't want to get too much into whether such an expedition as described, an apparent failure that seemed to have achieved very little, other than literally reaching the destination, can support a territorial claim. I mean, frankly, I think the question answers itself. Let's talk about whether this identification of Yizhou with China is even correct. The passages from Chronicles of the Three Kingdoms that I quoted above obviously don't give us much to go on in terms of identifying the location. But another author, a general of the Kingdom of Wu named Shen Ying, who was captured and killed in war in 280. Wrote a book describing the geography and society of China's southeastern coast and the sea beyond, and he was in a good position 
to be well-informed, having served as the governor of one of these coastal counties. In it, he describes Yizhou as follows. Yizhou is some 2,000 li, southeast of Linghai County. Neither frost nor snow covers the earth there, and trees and grass are evergreen. Mountains loom all around, and barbarians live in them. On top of a mountain is a rock that served as an archery target for the king of Yue. And the barbarians here divide into tribes and designate their own kings, drawing boundaries between themselves. Similar language describing Yizhou appears in the Han Shu, or History of the Later Han Dynasty, written in the 5th century. Okay, so does that sound like Taiwan? Well, Linghai County is now the coastal city of Taizhou in the province of Zhejiang. Taiwan is indeed due southeast from there. Is it 2,000 li away? I'm told that during the Han Dynasty, one li was equivalent to a little over 400 meters. So 2,000 li would be about 800 kilometers or 500 miles. If you measure from the southern end of Taiwan rather than the closer northern end, then 800 kilometers is a reasonable approximation of the distance from there to Taizhou. No snow and no frost? Evergreen plants? Sure. Taiwan's climate is subtropical. You have to climb up one of the taller mountains to see any snow. And mountains everywhere. Yes, Taiwan is notably mountainous. Barbarians live everywhere in tribes. Lots of indigenous tribes that a Chinese writer would have described as barbarian already made Taiwan their home at this time. What about this business about the archery target of the king of Yu? It's a bit curious. The Taiwanese independence activist and failed political assassin, Shi Ming, or Su Beng, as he preferred to have his name pronounced in Taiwanese, highlighted this detail to scoff at the identification of Yizhou as Taiwan. But actually... The king of Yue here refers to the ancient kingdom of Yue that existed as one of the major powers in China during the spring and autumn period in the first millennium BC. And as both ancient texts and the latest archaeological evidence suggest, the Yue was not culturally Han, or what we typically think of as Chinese. The Yue people at the time, living in the Yangtze Delta area, might have been an Austronesian culture, just like the indigenous tribes of Taiwan. So the reference to the king of Yu suggests a kinship between the kingdom of Yu and the indigenous people of Yizhou, which tends to support the case of identifying it with Taiwan. Okay, so Taiwan as Yizhou is at least a fairly plausible theory. What about other candidates? Does anyone else fit the bill? Some have suggested that Yizhou might be in Japan. But that's implausible 
both because of the specific mention of Yizhou being due southeast and its climate being too warm for snow, and because the Wu expedition set sail during winter, when the wind blowing in the East China Sea would have been northeasterly. With such wind, they couldn't have sailed to Japan. Also, the northern of the Three Kingdoms, the Wei, had diplomatic dealings with Japan. If a naval fleet from one of the rival kingdoms showed up in Japan, you bet the Wei would have heard about it and made a big fuss. But there is no evidence this ever happened. Some have suggested that Yizhou might be Hainan Island off China's southern coast. But this is implausible as well, because Hainan is very close to the Chinese coast, and clearly wouldn't have required a major expedition. It certainly wouldn't have taken them a year to get there and back. Another possibility is the Ryukyu Islands, or Liuqiu in Mandarin, now also called Okinawa. But Okinawa is farther from mainland China than Taiwan. Indeed, it's behind Taiwan. The Liuqiu Islands are also much smaller than Taiwan, so it seems likely that a fleet sailing for them from the Chinese coast would run into Taiwan first. So the prevailing and more reasonable supposition is that Yizhou is Taiwan, while Danzhou, the place that the Chronicles specifically says the Wu fleet didn't get to because it was too far out in the Pacific, is Okinawa. Although Liuqiu and Taiwan could also be confused with each other. And that brings us to the next major possible reference to Taiwan in ancient Chinese tracts, one that, incidentally, the Chinese government's white paper also cites as evidence of China's long-standing claims to Taiwan. The history of the Sui dynasty, written during the Tang dynasty in the 7th century and recording events in the late 6th century and early 7th century during the Sui dynasty, talks about a kingdom of Liuqiu in chapter 81 on barbarian kingdoms to the east. The text tells us that the kingdom of Liuqiu existed among islands in the sea and was five days sailing east from Jian'an, which today is a part of the province of Fujian, directly across the strait from Taiwan. Later in the text, we are told also that the kingdom of Liuqiu was only one day's sailing away from Turtle Island, which was an old name for one of the islands of the Penghu Archipelago, or Pescadores, in the Taiwan Strait. The king of Liuqiu was surnamed Huan Si, with the given name Kelado. Although ancient Chinese transliterations of foreign languages are sometimes all over the place, that name sounds plausibly like it could belong to an indigenous Taiwanese. For example, one indigenous Taiwanese politician today is named Kolas Yotaka. And this king presided over a society with many small kings and village chieftains. The text tells us how the Sui dynasty came into contact with them. 
In the first year of Da Yi, so 605 AD, officers serving on the coast thought they observed a landmass to the east. In 607, Emperor Yang Di of the Sui sent an expedition to find out what was there. The explorers came upon the kingdom of Liu Qiu. But because neither side could speak the other's language, the Chinese explorers decided to simply kidnap one person and haul him back to China. The following year, 608, Emperor Yang Di sent another expedition to Liu Qiu to demand fealty from the kingdom. One imagines the poor kidnapped man now serving as interpreter. But the kingdom of Liu Qiu refused. The Chinese emissaries left with only a collection of Liu Qiu clothes and armors. At this time, an ambassador from Japan arrived in China. The ambassador saw these items and said, Oh, I recognize these. They belong to the people of the kingdom of Yijiu. Some have argued that Yijiu was Kyushu in southwestern Japan, and so the kingdom of Liuqiu was really in Kyushu. But this seems implausible. Remember, Liuqiu was only one day's sailing from Turtle Island in Penghu, but Kyushu, Japan, was much more than one day's sailing from there. I would interpret the ambassador's comment as merely noticing a certain affinity between the culture of Kyushu at this time and the culture of the kingdom of Liuqiu. Then in 610 AD, Emperor Yang Di ordered a major invasion of Liuqiu. At this time, many foreigners from southern countries served in the Chinese military. These people were called Kunlun people in 7th century Chinese parlance, and we understand the term Kunlun people typically to mean either people from the Indian subcontinent or Southeast Asia. So these Kunlun people in the Chinese military arrived on the kingdom of Liuqiu and found that they could speak with the locals. This gives us another clue about Liuqiu. The language or languages spoken there were apparently reasonably similar to certain Southeast Asian languages. So the Chinese officers ordered these Kunlun soldiers to try to talk the locals into surrendering. But they refused. So the Sui Empire fought a war against the Liuqiu. The Chinese won several battles and set fire to the palace of the king of Liuqiu. Although one has to wonder what kind of structure might have deserved the name of palace at this time. And then the Sui Chinese took several thousand prisoners, men and women, and sailed back to China. And that was the end of that. So, was this kingdom of Liuqiu, in fact, Taiwan? I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that scholars disagree on the question. The PRC government obviously takes the position of yes, absolutely. 
And frankly, I'm inclined to agree. Although today the term Liuqiu or Ryukyu refers not to Taiwan but islands farther east, Okinawa of Japan. In the early seventh century, the term could have meant Taiwan, or it could have included Taiwan. Liuqiu could have meant Taiwan as well as Okinawa, and even further islands taken together. It may be worth remembering that even today. A small island off the southwestern coast of Taiwan is still called Liuqiu, or Xiao Liuqiu, Little Liuqiu, to distinguish it from Okinawa. Also, I just find it geographically implausible that the Sui Dynasty would have repeatedly dealt with Okinawa without tripping over Taiwan, which stands in the way. But okay, suppose this kingdom of Liuqiu was indeed Taiwan. And the Sui Dynasty fought a war against its indigenous tribes. What significance does that bear on the present? Again, I think I'll leave you to decide that for yourself. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.